executives and artists who are paid millions of dollars every year, <clears throat> every year to create images and logos, all in an effort to land a message in people's mind when we see them. And it works. I mean, think about it. Every single time we see that Mercedes-Benz logo, we associate it with affluence and luxury. Every time we see one of those little swooshes on somebody's shirt or their shoes, we think of success, especially on the athletic field. And every time we see those golden arches, we think of abundance. We think of abundance in the billions upon billions served, and we also think of abundance in our, in our growing waist size the more we visit those golden arches. But you see, the point is that everyone is trying to control their public perception because they've caught and they've grasped and they've realized that it matters. Because we're all known for something. And yes, as individuals, there's inherent risk thinking along these lines. Scripture is clear that the one person, the one being we should be serving and trying to please is God. But Jesus, by the way, did talk about public perception. He actually spoke about how his followers were to be perceived and what they should be known for. Because Jesus understood that as the messengers of the kingdom of God, it matters how people view his followers. So let me ask you, how is the church of Jesus Christ perceived in our day? What is the public perception of the followers of Jesus? What are Christians known for? There's a guy who recently took a microphone and a camera and he walked the streets of downtown Chicago. He didn't go to a church, he didn't go to a religious center. He went out to where every man or woman was, every normal person, every just casual random person. And he recorded as he asked each random person two questions. The first question was this, what do you think of Jesus Christ? And the second question was what do you think of Christians? He tabulated uh, his results and he put up a video online of how both questions were answered. I'm going to have um, Terry, show that to you now so we can get a glimpse of what he found. My savior. Good guy. Um, love, compassion, um, diversity. I'm Easter, loving, bearded. Kind. Got a good op opinion of Jesus Christ, that's for sure. Excellent man, wonderful. Sure, they had a religion after him. My savior. Actually, Jesus was the first punk rocker. Yeah? Yeah. He's, he's pretty cool, and I like him a lot. Savior. Black. <laughs> it's good. Yeah, I think it's good. Like why? It's Jesus. What else would you think of? Um, definitely um, altruistic philanthropy. Loving, peaceful, sincere. Out of touch? Uh, hopeful. Yeah. On their part. They're hoping for something they're not going to uh, get, I believe. Um, psycho. Uneducated. Backward. The South. I think of somebody that's possibly just a little bit, um, a little bit overboard, a little bit extreme. My uncle Bob, um, conservative, white, fanatical, Bible numbers, crazy. <laughs> People who wear white and like kind of glow, but are kind of freaky. Okay. Yeah, and um, Texas. I think I think there's a lot of stick. Stigmas attached to that word. I can't answer that. <laughs> Crazy. 
Frightening. Yeah. Yeah. I just overpowering. Overpowering. Yeah. You don't want to know. Somewhat scary. Um, maybe a little rigid in their in their dogma and their philosophy. Oh, um, nothing too good. In a Gallup poll can, uh, done recently, hundreds of people were asked what their opinion of followers of Jesus Christ was. A large group had no opinion whatsoever, which is a big enough concern of its own. Uh, but for those that did, the results were not pretty. For every person who had a positive opinion of Christians, there were more than two who had a negative perception of Christians. George Barner just released a study in which he looked at the faith practices of each religion or each region in the United States in the last 20 years. I was drawn to the results of the Midwest because, well, we live there. In the last 20 years in the Midwest, church attendance has fallen 15% and now only 40% of the population ever attend church at all at any point in the year. During that time, not surprisingly, there are drops in church volunteerism and Sunday school attendance. The number of people who believe in God in the Midwest has fallen. The number of people who believe that the Bible is the true and accurate word of God is at an all-time low for our region. But what struck, what struck me was while all this was happening in the last 20 years, the Midwest was the only region that experienced an increase in the number of people who claimed to be born-again followers of Jesus Christ. And so the conclusion is that the gap is growing, that even though there are more Christians now, their impact on society and non-believers is becoming less and less and less and less. And we can all hear the words of Jesus, if the salt loses its saltiness, what is it good for? How can it be made salty again? In 2007, a man by the name of David Kinnaman queried hundreds of young adults, asking them what they thought of Christians. He asked them to give him words, adjectives, to use, to, as the, to use that they would describe Christians. 68% said that Christians were boring. 70% said that Christians are insensitive to others' needs. 72% said that Christians are out of touch with reality. 75% said that we are too political. 78% uh, said that we are old-fashioned. 85% felt that Christians are hypocritical. 87% felt that Christians are judgmental, and 91% described us as homophobic. See, friends, the public perception of Christians is really, really, really poor. And there's no way to overstate that. It's really poor. In the field of public opinion, we lose. That's the reality. So how do we explain this? How do, how do we respond to this? What is the root cause behind this. Well, like I told you before, Jesus had a lot to say about perception. He did, for instance, just listen to these two quotes from Christ. John chapter 15, in verse 18 and 19, Jesus says this. He says, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. In Luke 21, he's, Jesus says simply, All men will hate you because of me. And so we must start by realizing the fact of the matter is that the message of Jesus Christ, the holiness of Jesus Christ, and the standards of Jesus Christ just will not be welcome in this world. And the reason for that is that he just doesn't fit. He doesn't. 
I mean, we live in a society where advancement, success, promotion, and prosperity are worshiped and they're strived for. And Jesus comes along and says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. We live in a world where it's taught to each his own and where self-seeking and self-worship are not only not apologized for, but they're pushed and encouraged. And Jesus comes along and says, if anyone wants to be my disciple, he must deny himself take up his cross daily and follow me. We live in a world where everyone views themselves as a good person, where hard work and perseverance are the answer, and where nothing is valued that you cannot earn. And Jesus comes along and says, you cannot earn heaven. You cannot earn God's favor. You have already failed. You need me. You need my grace. You need my work on the cross. You need forgiveness. Jesus Christ and his kingdom simply do not fit in this world. And he knew it and he prepared us for it. So let me ask you, is that it? Does that explain it all away? Does that sort of give us a free pass and absolve us from all the blame when it comes to the public perception of the church? Well, unfortunately, no. Because you see, the issue isn't that we Christians have a negative public perception. That's not the issue. The issue is the reasons behind it. Jesus said that the world will hate us because of him. The same reasons that he was persecuted, the same reasons that he was attacked, the same negative press that he got, that should all come back on us. And let me ask you, are we even close to that? Jesus was never one time accused of being boring. In fact, almost everyone around him just wished he would stop rocking the boat so much. Jesus was never accused of being insensitive to others. The problem was, is that he wouldn't stop being sensitive to the needs of others, even if it broke some tradition or Sabbath day law. Jesus was never called hypocritical. He was hated because he rightly pointed out the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. And if old-fashioned means some moral stance, I'll be called old-fashioned, but Jesus was never accused of being old-fashioned. He was persecuted because he didn't care about all the traditions and ceremonies that were in place in the Judaic culture. Jesus was never hated for being judgmental. He was hated for being too forgiving, too accepting, too embracing. You see, it was his grace, it was his truth, it was his pursuit of all people, including the cast-offs and the slaves. It was his own righteous character and witness that was so offensive. And Jesus never had a poor public perception for the things his followers have a poor public perception for. Instead, Jesus spoke about how we should be known. Do you know that? He spoke about the defining characteristic that his followers should be marked and defined by. I still remember sitting in a Sunday school class that was being taught by my father, of all people. And he was asked a question that really wasn't on topic with the, with the lesson at all. And if you've ever taught on Sunday school, you've been there. Um, and so he's given this off-the-cuff answer that I was only sort of listening to, if I'm honest, because I had a sermon to give after And right in the middle of this answer, he said a line that not only brought my attention back to what he was saying, but it just struck me right in the face. And this is what he said. He said, the problem is that far too often Christians are known way more for what they are against than to what they actually stand for. I just froze. And I began to think about how there was a time in my life, a big period of time, in which I was always willing to tell people every single thing that I was against, but how little I actually showed them what I was for. 
I was struck by how, though I don't want to admit it, far too often I'm still way more willing to speak against things than I am to go out and live the life that Christ calls me to live. And if you hear the responses, if you see the public perception of Christians, can I just say we've done a really good job of letting the world know what we're against? We have. Let's consider that done. But you see, we in the church, we followers of Christ, myself fully included, have done a pathetic job of letting them know what we actually stand for. You see, the good news is that Jesus actually told us what this was. He told us plainly and clearly what his followers should be known for. In the 13th chapter of John, there's a lot going on. And and where we're going to pick it up, Jesus has already washed his disciples' feet. An amazing act of love and humility. He says he's done this to give them an example. And he's told the group that he's going to be betrayed. and, And John tells us that Jesus knew full well that that night he would be arrested and be led away to die on the cross the following day. And so he's coming to the end of his unbroken, intimate time with his closest followers and disciples. And he's sharing, he's sharing this final meal with them, these final hours with them. And he's going to tell them in verse 33 that he's about to go somewhere they cannot. And then he shares with them a valuable piece of, an, of information that we're going to land on today. So pick up with me in verse 33 of John chapter 13. He says, My children, I'll be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new command, that's interesting, a new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. So Jesus prepares them for his departure, which would be incredibly hard on them. And then he tells them he has a new command. This is a new teaching. This is a new idea. And what was it? He says that they should love one another. By the way, that's not new at all. All the way back in Leviticus 19, where God commands the Israelites that they are to love one another. Jesus has already earlier in his ministry stated that the entire Old Testament law could be wrapped up by loving God and loving others as much as we love ourselves. So what makes this ancient and old command entirely new? It's the new standard. It's the new standard of love. Did you see it? Jesus says, as, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. See, this is a whole new ballgame. This goes beyond affection. This goes beyond a sense of general concern for someone. This goes beyond cookie-cutter love that's just huggy-feely. This is the kind of love that sacrifices self. This cost, it puts others first at all times. It forgives, especially when forgiveness isn't deserved. It honors, it cherishes, it empties you of all your selfish desires, and it is embodied by Jesus Christ hanging on the cross in torment and suffering, not for anything that he had done, not for any gain of his own, not for any worldly worth, but totally, completely, and sufficiently for the gain, forgiveness, and aid of others, of us who put him there. And the command that Jesus gives is that we should love one another like that. That's how we should love one another. And then Jesus had one more thing to say, something that would spit in the face of all recent surveys or all concerns to what his church might stand for. Look at verse 35 when he says simply, By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus actually said that if people on the street were polled about Christians, the number one response should be given, they are people of love. If you could describe Christians in one word, Jesus says the answer simply should be loving. And what's striking to me about this is how low, actually how low the bar is set by Jesus here. 
I know you're looking at me funny, but Jesus really isn't asking for as much as we think. Elsewhere, he'll talk about loving the world. Elsewhere, he's going to talk about loving our enemies. Elsewhere, he talks about turning the other cheek. These are all things that Jesus values. These are all things he expects out of us. But they are not to be the overwhelming thing that defines his followers. Did you catch what he said? He said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love who? If you love one another. If Christian brothers would just love Christian brothers, if Christian sisters would just love Christian sisters, if the body of Christ would just function like it should, if his church would simply love each other, then the whole world would know that we belong to Jesus Christ. That's what he says. And his words here in John 13 inspired the Spirit to speak through every author in the New Testament after him. Because all throughout the New Testament, we have these one another verses in Scripture. This, these commands from God showing us just how seriously God esteems the way his children treat each other. It's almost 30 verses that specifically quote one another in the New Testament, highlighting the calls of God in his church. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. In those 30 verses, we find the call to love one another at least a half dozen more times. And so let me just ask real quick before we move on, how are we doing at this, church? How are we doing at this? Let's just narrow it down even more. For the time being, let's forget about the body of Christ as a whole. Let's just get real personal with it. Let's just talk about First Baptist Church of North Terre Haute. Do we love each other with a love that even begins to resemble Christ's love for us? Is that the love that you show your fellow brothers and sisters here? Do you help out? Do you volunteer? Do you lend a hand in someone's life even when it's terribly inconvenient for you to do so? Do you give to the people in this body to the point of it hurting? Do you, vote, do you devote large amounts of your precious energy and time for the welfare of others here? And do you absorb slights and hurts without complaining or fighting back or holding grudges? See, this kind of love is hard. It's really hard. The problem is that it's really easy to become a follower of Jesus Christ. It's easy to ask someone to pay my price for me. When it gets really difficult is when you actually try to start living like him. We find in Romans, and Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, Thessalonians, Hebrews, 1 John, 1 Peter, James, others. They all continue with these one another calls. Just listen to these and imagine a community of people living like this. We are called multiple times to encourage one another. Let me ask, do you send cards or texts or emails with encouraging words to people in this body? Do you, do you cheer anyone on in their faith? Do you take the time to place a phone call or tell someone what a positive influence they've been in your life? We're commanded to live in harmony with one another. We're called to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. This church is commanded to stop passing judgment on one another. We're told to accept one another. Faults, quirks, weird clothes, and haircuts included, just as Jesus Christ accepted us. Because he did not just accept the good parts of us and leave the rest. He took the whole package. We are commanded to instruct one another, that those of us who have been following Christ, those with wisdom and knowledge, that they take the time to instruct and teach and share what God has given them to the next generations of Christians in love. It is written that we should agree with one another so there would be no divisions. We are told to use the freedom that we have in Christ, not for our own gain, but to serve one another in love. These calls just continue again and again and again as you read the scriptures. Bear with one another in patience. 
Be kind and compassionate with one another. Speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Do not slander one another. Offer hospitality to one another. And then in 1 Peter 5, all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Isn't it funny how it always comes back to that? Humility. The most elusive characteristic of the human heart, yet the one most essential in heeding the calls of Scripture. You see, the Bible is clear that the church is not a building. It's, it's not a word to put on a sign. It's not a structured set of beliefs. It's a community. It's a community on a mission, a community whose entire purpose is to take part in and spread the kingdom of God on this earth. And to thrive and to be the community that we are called to be, we need to be a community that's defined by all those verses and all those calls we just read and heard. And that will happen when we hear and heed the call of Jesus to love one another just as he loved us. By the way, I'll save you the trouble of figuring it out. We are not that community. We are not a community that fits the description of how Christ's church should act. We're not alone in that, but we are not that community. And I think it stems in the prevailing attitude of the American church as a whole. It's not a new attitude, don't worry, we didn't invent it. But we have bought into it. And I have bought into it. Because too often we view church as a place to consume. Not to participate or belong. We look for churches that we call a good fit. We have this shopping list, if you will, as we do so. Do I like the music? And if I don't, can I just come late to every service and skip that part? Is the nursery nice? Do they offer any sports teams? Is there free coffee? Do I like the sermons? Does the pastor have an annoying voice? What about kids' programs? Are there people there that are my age? Are there people there that look like me? Is it a short enough drive from my house? Do their services start late enough so I can sleep in a little later on Sundays? Just how much or how little do I have to dress up? You see, what we do is we look for a church that fits in the parameters of the canvas that we have given it. And as long as those parameters are being met, then we'll stay. And there's nothing wrong with it except the fact that it just goes against everything in the New Testament. Because you see, when those those parameters are no longer being met... And what happens is we're open for business again. We're church-free agents, waiting for the next group to come along, the uh, next group of suitors and w- to wow us. Because for us, it was never about community. It was about shopping. It was never about serving. It was about being fed. It was never about being a part of a loyal family. It was about as long as no one hurts my feelings. Now I'll tell you what, where this, that, that is where the rubber meets the road. It's serious enough to make church about us, but it's a whole other level when it comes to this powerful word, forgiveness. A speaker at Student Life Camp last month was a man by the name of Darren Patrick, and one night he actually was talking about community, real, true community as it is defined in the New Testament. And he had this to say, he said, forgiveness is the litmus test of any community that we are in. To the degree that we forgive each other, will be the degree that we have community. And you know what? One of the most baffling and confusing things in the entire world to me is how a group of people who have been reconciled to God cannot stay reconciled to each other. 
You see, you've done far worse to God than anyone here or anyone anywhere has ever done to you. You really have. And Scripture tells us that He has removed that offense from you as far as the east is from the west. He has forgiven you. He has showered you with His grace and He holds it against you no more. In Colossians 3, we are told simply, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And I won't downplay the hurt you feel or how painful it was. I'm not going to act like that doesn't exist. But if you are continually harboring bitterness or resentment to someone in this body over a slight or a hurt, if you simply feel like you just cannot live in harmony with them, then with all the grace and all the love and all the patience that I'm capable of, I still have to suggest this to you. Get over yourself. I know that sounds harsh. I don't mean it to. But you have also wronged people in your life. And you have wronged God. And as someone who has tasted the free and wonderful gift of forgiveness, how dare you withhold that from someone else? Pray and ask God to change you and give you a heart that is capable of forgiving because forgiveness is a supernatural thing. Listen, I I know what you're thinking right now. There is no perfect church. You're right. There will never be a perfect church. We will never be a perfect church. I get that. I really do. But it is past time that the church of Jesus Christ stop hiding behind that excuse as a reason to not even try and experience real community. It's past time that the church of Jesus Christ is known for its love, for the forgiveness that flows within its walls, for the grace that should define it, and for the community that it was meant to be. And if you can give me one good reason why we shouldn't strive for that, then I'll stop talking about it forever. And yes, community comes with a cost. We have to push aside hurts. We have to live for people other than ourselves. We have to not care when we don't get our way. We have to be inconvenienced, we have to be stretched, we have to be hurt, we have to be selfless, and we have to be sacrificial. We do. I understand. But the thing about God is, He never calls us to something if it isn't worth it. Do you ever wonder why Jesus prayed for us the prayer He did in John 17? John 17, Jesus is praying, and He begins to pray for His church, His followers to come in the future, which includes all of us. And he prays once, not not once, but three times repeatedly in the same prayer, the same idea, the same prayer for us, that we may be in complete unity. And the words that he uses is that you and I may be one as he and the Father are one. Now just think about that for a moment. This is Jesus Christ. He is literally God. He knows full well every blessing and every good thing that we can experience in this life. He knows full well the abundant riches of heaven. He created it, by the way. He has the power to offer us anything. He wants what is best for us, and he loves us enough that he died on the cross to take our place. And when he prays for us, he asks for just one thing. That we may be one the way that he was one with the Father. That you and I may get the joy and the pleasure and the unbelievable fulfillment of authentic community. And I think the next day we get a glimpse of why he prayed that. Because the day after Jesus prayed that prayer for us, he went to the cross, and the Bible records for us multiple things that Jesus said on the cross. And what's interesting to me is that while he on the cross, in unbelievable physical torment and pain, Jesus' words on the cross do not reflect that. He sounds like a man in control. He's speaking with purpose. You can sense the power of Jesus in everything he said while he was in the midst of excruciating suffering. In every phrase he uttered from the cross, 
except for one. Just one. Because Matthew records for us that towards the end, as Jesus became every single thing that God cannot tolerate, as he became the embodiment of our sin, the entire earth went dark, and for the first time, Jesus cried out as someone who was in complete agony. Only he did not speak of physical pain. Do you remember what he said? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Of all the suffering on the cross, and there was more than we can imagine, the worst of it all for Jesus was how for the first time in all of eternity, he was broken off from community with the Father. For the first time, he was separated. And friends, that is the, that is the God that you and I were created in the image of. We were made with a need for community. And as long as we don't experience the real deal, to the degree that we don't live in real community, to the degree that we haven't, is to the degree that we haven't became who God made us to be. And we are not the only beneficiaries. See, there's a reason that Jesus wanted his followers to be defined by the love that they have for each other. D.L. Moody told a story of a young man who grew up in Chicago. He attended a Sunday school class every week at the same church, and one day his parents moved to a completely different part of the city, almost all the way across the opposite side. The next Sunday, however, and every Sunday after, this young man would get up extra early, and he would make the long walk all by himself all the way across the city to attend that church. And after church, he would walk all by himself all the way across the city back home. One day, one of his friends asked him about this. He said, there, there's churches all over Chicago. I'm sure there are churches just as nice as yours, much closer to your home. Why do you keep making that journey? His answer was short and simple. They know how to love each other over there. See, that was enough for this teenage boy to walk the great distance to get to, just to experience that. See, the same disciple who sat at the table in John 13 and heard Jesus say, by this, all men will know you are my disciples if you love one another, later sat down and wrote his own letter to churches. And in 1 John chapter 4, this is what he wrote. He said, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and he is made, his love is made complete in us. You see, we need to be a community of grace because we need it. We need to be a community that is defined by our love because we need it. If you are here, we all of the rest of us need you to be in community with us because we all need it. But we also need to be a community of love because they need it. They really do. Because how is it possible for anyone to see God in this fallen world? How is it possible in the midst of wars and death and famines and tragedies and illness and disasters and abuse for God to actually be seen? John tells us it's when we love each other, the world sees God. Because when we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us and we are giving the world a picture of the love that God offers them. So let me just ask the question. If someone observed your life, if an outsider observed our church, if they observed our interactions, our propensity to forgive, our willingness to sacrifice, our love for each other, just what picture of God would we actually be painting them? What would we be showing them? May we humble ourselves today before Jesus, whose one wish for us was to be completely unified. 
May we ask him to show us each individually how we have stood in the way of that. And may we commit to surrendering to Christ and asking him that at least, the very least for First Baptist Church in Terre Haute, that we would become known and defined by the, for the love that we show one another. Let's pray. Father, the world needs your church, your body, to be a community and experience they can't get anywhere else. We humbly confess to you that far too often we give them the exact same experience they can find anywhere else. So God, we know that you respond to us in grace and love. And we ask that you would show each one of us now individually what we are doing what bitterness we are harboring, what selfish attitudes we may be holding on to that is resisting community in this place. Help us each to surrender it to you today. May we become a place that is defined by the love that we have for one another, just as you asked it. I pray all these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. This is a great old hymn. I'll let the instruments just play. This is a powerful word we've just heard. and Maybe we just need a moment. Let the Spirit continue to do this work. I'll just ask you to bow your heads and your hearts as the music plays and just let God speak. Continue to speak. Maybe there's, maybe there's an issue here that you need to address. Maybe you need to be obedient, be reconciled to someone here, right in this body. Or you've felt wounded and you've held it. It happens. God just kind of speak and lead you through that this morning as we sing.